business as usual is over. 11FS's Benjamin Enser and Sarah Kachansky have put together a comprehensive report analyzing the short, medium, and long-term impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on financial services. They outline how banks, investment management firms, and insurance companies will need to adjust to meet the demands of a new normal. You can read the report right now for free at info.11fs.com forward slash COVID-19. That's info.11fs.com forward slash COVID-19. No hyphen there. Remember, no hyphen people. All right, let's start the show. From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you the Chancellor announces state-backed loans, more of the COVID cuts HSBC profits, and a rate cut hits gamers in an unlikely place. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 423 of Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, the one and only Adam Davis. How are you doing today, Adam? I am very good, thanks, Si. Very good. Fe- feeling like a feral beast. I think I'm turning into one at home. It's, uh, it's, the natural co- it's the only conclusion after six weeks. This is the way it's rolling now. I thought you were always feral, but that's just me. Um, well, we are still practicing our social distancing, Adam. Um, but as always, we are joined remotely by some awesome, awesome guests. Uh, making some FinTech Insider debuts, we have Jana Dimitrova, who's CEO at OpenPaid. How are you doing, Jana? Great to be here, Simon. Um, very well. Thank you very much. Excited to uh, chat to you guys for the next hour. Exciting stuff. And uh, Caroline Casey, who is VP of Innovation, Partnership and Labs at Mastercard. How are you doing, Caroline? I'm great. Thanks, Simon. Thank you so much for joining us and making a welcome return. The one and only Jamie Campbell, who's the CEO at Fronted. How are you doing, Jamie? I'm, I'm pretty good. Coping as much as I can with uh, the social distancing and, and keeping myself um, locked away in, 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 the, in the flat, which is, um, you know, which is okay. I like that you're sitting by a window like uh, the dog that wants to go for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was saying before we jumped on the call that uh, it's, it, it is the only quiet place in my house with a turbo trainer in one room and a sewing machine in the other. So um, yeah, this is the only place I can, <laughs> I can do a recording of like this. They're two weird hobbies you've got. I know. It's so easy. It's so funny watching me do them at the same time as well. <laughs> well, we're glad you can join us, even if it is near a window. And welcome to the show. Thanks all for joining us. Let's let's get started. As we have been doing for the last few shows, we cannot avoid talking about the coronavirus and its impact um, on the stories this week. So we're going to dig deep into those in the first half of the show. Um, and then uh, towards the second half of the show, after the ad read, we will cover some good old fintech stuff as well. And we're going to get started with uh, a story from we picked up from BBC News. This was the uh, UK Chancellor announcing 100% backed coronavirus business loans. So companies can uh, apply for loans between £2,000 and £50,000 by filling out a simple two-page form. Uh, they can apply up to, for to, up to 25% of their turnover uh, for up to that £50,000 cap. Uh, they must also prove that they were viable before the pandemic hit, and the government will then pay the interest on those loans for 12 months. The move comes after other coronavirus relief schemes faced significant delays. And in response to the criticism, banks have, of course, 
blamed heavy workloads, uh, heavy, heavy workloads, heavy workloads, and staff shortages. Um, Rasim is scheduled to start next week. Um, Adam, there's been lots of things happening. Governments around the world have been reacting in different ways. Um, what did you think when you saw this? Uh, well, I think if you uh, if if you look at SMEs, this is the emphasis on the S, and I think uh, g- general commentary over the past few weeks has deemed this specific segment relatively uh, neglected. So I think um, I think it's the right move. I think generally it, it, it looks like the only move, uh, and there was an overwhelming pressure for 100% back mortgages, especially for as I say the uh, the, the smaller of the SME community. Um, and in that respect, I, you know, it's been well, this was, I think it was announced a couple of days ago now, and it's been, I suppose, uh, from a national perspective, very much um, embraced and, and people are, are right behind it, which is which is good, including sort of trade bodies as well as government and commentators and even the media. So that's good. Um, it does throw up some significant questions in terms of um, what's the risk actually of, uh, of lending this money, uh, the risk that goes into only having a sort of a two-page application versus, I suppose, a more... Um, thorough credit risk process. Um, But uh, I think given where the government is now and given the impact that this will make, it's about stopping the bleeding. And and this is definitely designed to do that. Interesting stuff. Caroline, did you have some thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, similar to Adam, you know, SMEs are clearly under an enormous amount of pressure right now. And so there was a need for a really urgent solution. Uh, You know, it's a question of how do you get money to the people who need it as quickly as possible? Um, which was, you know, a real challenge for people on the front line of that. Um, but we do expect lending to continue to grow pretty rapidly in the weeks ahead. Um, and, in, you know, looking at lenders working with the government on this and trying to provide some viable businesses with the support they need. Um, I think, though, as, as well, you know, from a sort of a MasterCard perspective, you know, funding is needed, but in many cases they also need access to services and solutions in this space. Um, so you may have heard about that we recently announced the $250 million fund for small to medium enterprises. And um, one of the things we're seeing is SMEs, um, you know, needing to move really fast online. And this has associated cybersecurity risk. So that's one area we're looking at and bringing expertise to. And the other is around sort of data and insights. And I think SMEs, again, um, needing, needing to compete in this space and sometimes being quite new to it. I need some support. So I think, yeah, definitely agree with with Adam's comments, but also some things that we're doing in addition to just money uh, to look at solving this problem. Yeah, there's some interesting points that Caroline makes there about how um, you know there is increased risk here, but there's also um, potential solutions out there to, to to start mitigating some of that. You know, what do you think the the calculus is here? Is this trying to remove some of the risk from the lenders so things get out faster? And are there other things that people should be thinking about as they look at this? Uh, absolutely. That's that's a great question, Simon. So I think, first of all, um, supporting small businesses is, is absolutely vital in this environment. And I guess the industry, both banks and non-banking financial institutions and the schemes as well, would agree that actually the, the health of uh, those uh, small and medium businesses is the foundation of, uh, of, of, of the entire uh, financial services industry that we're all uh, part of and, and members of. So uh, I think with that in mind, any measures in support of viable business models uh, are, are very much welcome. Um, that being said, I guess the uh, uh, that that proposal raises a, uh, a matrix of very complex questions, and one of them is, as you quite right, 
pointed out, uh, the, the question about risk and, and risk assessment. Uh, but I think it also uh, brings to the table an opportunity, an opportunity that businesses and, and, and banks and financial service providers have probably not uh, quite managed to seize before. And that is uh, uh, around how businesses uh, define risk, first of all, and how they analyze uh, that risk. And it brings uh, me, I guess, to the point of uh, data analytics and collaboration between the various providers in our ecosystem. Again, banks, -banks, non-banks, payment schemes, uh, and and the sharing of data so that uh, a more full picture can be built and so that actually uh, institutions can pre-analyze the activity of a particular business and um, and can actually react to a situation like like the situation that we find ourselves in today and be able to start lending money or or or, or help and and, and and prevent risk uh, early on so uh, I think the, the the question about uh, data analytics and how businesses actually uh, uh, manage to extract data uh, from the transaction activity of their client will be something that uh, both banks and, and non-bank financial institutions will be focusing very much on uh, uh, on a go-forward basis. Jana, that's super interesting. Jamie, as, as you look at this, do you think, um, to Jana's point, whilst the default risk of the loan itself is is sort of removed from the bank the sort of regulatory burden around it there's still probably going to be something so data may help there and data can help in lots of interesting ways i i, I suspect um anything that helps these businesses has got to be good but uh, but what are your thoughts yeah i mean you know people who people who know uh, know me will know that i'm a big advocate of using data to um you know to to put in some remedies that feel that are contextual and are relevant for for businesses i mean work that you and i had done simon recently on on covid credit um while for a different sector is um you know is, is kind of you know using um using kind of live banking data to to uh, to address those issues i think from when i when i think about the, as a as you know as a small business um you know it's it's interesting to kind of look at all of these different um remedies that are that are coming out because you know i i have a you know, two different views on 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 this. Is I have the kind of the the business owner perspective where, um, you know, it's I can see loads of value in this, and then you have the taxpayer um, kind of side where, um, you know, is is the appropriation of the funds, um, you know, worthwhile and, and and useful. And I actually I think when I'm when I think about the macro impact of a lot of these things, it's like, you know, the thing that moves the needle for the UK economy is, is, is unemployment, like the most, you know, and, and, and to do as much as possible to mitigate those things from happening, you know, to, to create remedies to, to make those things um, less likely to happen, I think is, um, is the most important um, thing that the, that the, that the kind of the government can be doing. And I, and I, you know, and I see these, um, uh, these remedies, and I, and I look at you know the um, you know the the other the other kind of uh, I guess the equity side of of some of the remedies that have come out, um, you know where the the government will match um, a, a kind of a, a VC investing in a in a small startup. Um, you know, I, I look to to this new um, I guess remedy as as a slightly less risky way of making a similar impact. Um, you know. 
I think, I th- yeah. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm still kind of undecided on how I feel about, um, how I feel about a lot of these, you know, as a small business owner, I'm incredibly grateful to see so many options available to us. Um, um, you know, it's just how, how they choose the businesses to work with and, and, um, you know, at what stage in which they, they get involved in the data that they look at, I think is going to be the most important factor around whether this is good or, or bad. Jamie, I actually think you're raising a, a very important point there, a very interesting one. Um, I guess the interesting point there is that businesses now have to prove uh, value, that they are creating value today uh, versus, I guess, the standard uh, way of investors of looking at businesses, uh, which is very much focused or used to very much be focused on uh, future value. I think that's a great point, Jana. Um, what, what I'd say is that uh, we've we've covered a couple of times on recent episode, like what, how does the credit model really change? Because we're not in good times anymore, and it looks like the new normal isn't coming for a while. So having the government stand in is really, really helpful. We know new data will help, but you know, will the taxpayer be really concerned in um, twelve months' time if there has been a lot of fraud, if these businesses hadn't been viable in the first place? Uh, and these are risks and potential unintended consequences, but it's hard to know what choice the government really has. And I'm going to move us to the next story because I'm sure we'll come back to to countless initiatives from from government. But, you know, as we move into the private sector, there's a story um, from The Guardian, um, and we could have covered many because it is results season for the, for the big banks in the UK at the moment. But this one is about coronavirus cutting HSBC profits in half. And that's bearing in mind, we only really saw the impact from March onwards. So Q1 would have been January to sort of uh, April. Uh, So this is really quite significant. So the multinational bank um, has to also devote 8.8 billion pounds to cover bad debts it may incur over the next year. They've already paid 2.4 billion to cover defaults, which led to a 48% drop in profits in March alone. Uh, Depending on the severity of the downturn, HSBC said loan loss provisions could surge between 7 and 11 billion for the full year 2020. The bank also said the current crisis was quite different from that imagined by the Bank of England's annual stress tests, which determine whether banks can uh, weather severe economic downturns. Um, The company will also cut costs to make up for lost revenue, but the CEO, Noel Quinn, says um, the bank will continue with its planned £4.5 billion overhaul, despite some opposition from shareholders as well as climate change activists. Adam, I know you're a fan of uh, results season, but this one is uh, a results season like uh, results season like no other. I mean, these are unprecedented times. Uh, what's your analysis of this? Well, I think 8.8 billion sounds like an extraordinarily large number, but then you've got to uh, recognise that HSBC are global and have got uh, a substantial operation in Asia. Um, I think the if you then compare that to a Barclays who announced last uh, a few days ago now. Their uh, their results actually uh, spiked about a twelve percent increase in their share price, mainly because their IB uh, their IB instance has done so well and has actually within all this volatility has actually produced record profits. And then Lloyd's, who I think also has announced their results just prior to to us recording this, and they've also set aside a similar amount around one point I think it's one point one one point two billion to what Barclays 
have done as impairment charges for the potential crisis uh, and to cover it. What you've seen from all those three banks is basically front loading. So, you know, share price at the moment is low. So why not front load the bad news and then hope for the rest of the year that you'll have a steady climb, I guess, versus what they, uh, what you could do, which is essentially if you take that 1.1 billion, or the 8.8 billion from HSBC, and then almost divide that by 12 over the year, then you've got continuation of bad news, which would compress the share price probably across the year. So I think um, it sounds as if like 1.2, 1.4 billion, that kind of level is what certainly the tier ones in the UK are putting aside for for the coronavirus hit. Um but it hasn't massively impacted share price over and above what we've already seen across the last sort of three to four weeks, which is in some respects positive. Um, I will just go back to something you did say about the stress tests, um, because if they, for me, it's, you know, I know they've been testing a whole heap of stuff um, and some of it is sort of, you know, regulatory issues and some of it is like reputational issues and whatever else. But if they weren't testing a pandemic, uh kind of this was like the number one <laughs> of like the, the worst things that could possibly happen like what have they been testing i don't know yeah so the stress tests i think were always based around uh the ability to weather a credit crisis because the the i think the assumption was going to be we if we see another 2008 how do we fix that but this this is actually a very different crisis um as you said the barclays investment bank is doing really really well on the volatility but the real economy is really suffering so it's almost the inverse 2008 where the where the casino banks are doing really well um but the the sort of the main street banks are are really really struggling and this this fundamentally changes, I think, the nature of it. And um, Jamie, as as you look at that, what are your observations? Well, I I think it's you know the origination of this uh, issue didn't originate from uh, instability in the banking sector. Um, you know, it was an external influence, which you know, and and you know, from for all intents and purposes, the banking sector was is relatively um, kind of stable or, or going into this was 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 relatively stable and i think this story and the previous story you know they are interlinked you know um bad debts um you know whether it's mortgage debts unsecured for on, on consumer um you know the risk of those 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 loans all all kind of increase as um uh, you know as unemployment increases and uh, job security um uh, decreases and you know and i think that is you know, part of the, and I think it's kind of, and I'm, you know, I don't want to return back to the previous um, story by any means, but I think part of the reason why I'm still, um, you know, conflicted around the, 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 the relief efforts is because even if, you know, the government doesn't get a return on the actual loan principle coming back, the mitigating of the risk of unemployment leading on to all of these um, kind of bad debts increasing and getting worse and and people defaulting more um, that has a bigger impact in terms of the way in which it falls out in the economy than you know than than some of these outstanding loans I think I, that's how my how my kind of um, you know brain tries to kind of square the circle but it you know it's they are kind of these large numbers you know that people are kind of putting aside to um, you know to to, to barrier against um, uh, bad debts and I think uh, you know Barclays has come out and as you're saying Lloyd's as as, as well with similar similar figures but um, you know, it's it's you know it is it's fascinating to watch it all um, uh, roll out and and how these relief efforts kind of play to to make sure that some of the um, some of the infrastructure which seems you know like it's not falling apart in the same way that it did in two thousand and eight um, can prevent something like that um, from spiraling even 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 more and I think that's where that's where I think the you know the interesting piece of of how the Treasury and the economy is reacting to the crisis, uh, you know, alongside these 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 larger banks. 
Jamie, that's a good point. It's almost like um, in when the banks were in crisis, we bailed out the banks, and when the Main Street is in crisis, we've we've got to bail out Main Street. And the tools to do that aren't as easily and readily available. And we're we're seeing policy being developed, sort of fly fly by uh, fly by the seat of your pants a little bit. But respect to everybody that's trying to get that done, Caroline. As you look at these results, what do you think it's saying about the market? What do you think it's saying about um, where where Main Street is and and where uh, where really the industry's changing? Um, I mean, I think everyone's under pressure right now. So I don't think this is at all surprising to see an announcement like this. Um, you know, it's a pretty trying time for everyone. Um, and I think the industry itself, though, is really focused on ensuring the safety of their employees and supporting clients, small business, communities and government partners. So I think everyone's busy doing a lot of things. But this sort of announcement is is to be expected. Um I think, though, there is also currently so many unknown factors. We're so early in this. Um, it makes it really difficult to determine where we're actually going to end up. Um, and I think there needs to be a bit of realism that these, these fallouts will happen. Um, but also I think there needs to be hopefully some amount of optimism, if that's possible, and, and pragmatism as well about how to deal with it. But I think, um, yeah, it, it's not surprising. And I think that, you know, that there's, there's probably going to be big impacts in, in a number of areas. I was just going to say, I think um, just off the back of that, there is, I suppose, a big shout out to the capital uh, requirements, the tier one capital requirements and ratios that these banks have had to hold since 2008. Uh, I think they're up to sort of 10% if you're holding in capital is like the minimum. And I think even with the crisis as it is, um, because of the circular nature of how this money's being lent, the banks are still hovering sort of the 12, 13% mark. Um, and that just wasn't there in 2008. And it goes to show that from a well-capitalized perspective, I don't know if that is a perspective, but it, it, but it's, um, but it goes to show that things that have been done over the last 10 years has reaped the benefit now during this, uh, during this downturn. Has Adam won the award for coolest shout out on this um, podcast ever? Um, shout out to the tier one capital ratios. That's that's the way we roll. That's the, <laughs> that's the kind just, of shout outs. I didn't want that to go. I just didn't want that to go by without someone kind of really putting a focus on it and making sure that everyone was 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 giving it the props it deserved. Hey, Basel three is cool these days. <laughs> y- Yana. Hashtag, the eye caps and the eye laps. No, I just wanted to say I think Adam is making a great point there because um, actually in I guess the uh, in the last uh, eight weeks uh, banks have been given the opportunity to rehabilitate themselves and. Um, I guess uh, to the point of one uh, CEO of a large French bank saying that uh, uh, banks are right now the doctors of the economy. Now, I'm not sure if I would go as far, uh, but I think it's it's certainly uh, interesting to see how the regulatory framework, the regulation of financial, I guess, both banking and non-banking um, uh, environment is going to evolve uh, because um, Adam made a great point there around the capital requirements. I think the uh, the PRA already came up with uh, their expectation for banks to apply significantly more pragmatic approach and far more in-depth analysis of, of the viability and, and the profitability of their offerings. But also what we see on the uh, non-banking side of, of financial services is that the, uh, the FCA 
FDA was very, very quick to uh, notify everyone that they expect businesses to have sufficient operation capital for at least 12 months, which has never really been the case before. So uh, I think uh, I, I would probably not focus on the results of, of individual banks, individual financial institutions. I think we need to look at how the, uh, the, the environment is going to evolve after and as we exit out, out of that crisis. And I'm sure that in terms of supervision and uh, operational resilience, the expectations will be significantly higher. Absolutely no. There was there's a lot of interesting things coming out of the results this this um, this week. I mean, even Barclays was saying that big offices may be a thing of the past. Um, and many skyscrapers could remain empty for a long time. They may even think about uh, using branches as as distant uh, distant offices that for even investment bank employees. Uh, the world is changing into into a new normal. Um, but as you say. Uh, Banks are seeing an opportunity to regain their trust. Regulators are looking for them to be efficient and fair uh, with and transparent with their customers. But it seems like in the US at least, um, banks are, are reaping some rewards for that. In fact, um, story from the Wall Street Journal, uh, coronavirus has driven up deposits at the major US banks. So um, companies and consumers deposited over $1 trillion US dollars in the first quarter of 2020. More than half that amount went to JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Citi. Combined, these banks received 590 billion US dollars in deposits, uh, eclipsing the previous record of 313 billion for the entire banking industry in a quarter. Um, a significant portion of those departments uh, came during uh, a two-week stretch in March when companies were stockpiling cash to prepare for a COVID-induced recession. Uh, banks also made about 10 billion uh, in fees by processing loans financed by these small business stimulus program. So uh, a second point there that they've they've done quite well out of the fees, but f- deposits have flown to the big banks and the big trusted names. It appears like a lot of this has been um, corporate America um, sorting out its balance sheet, but uh, do we think that uh, there's, there's something happening in the consumer space as well? Um, maybe Caroline? Yeah, I think again, this isn't isn't probably that surprising that companies and consumers are, are putting their money in, in banks. Um, and I think, you know, some for some, there will be more money available as spending decreases, especially on the consumer side. Um, so it's positive, though, that they do have confidence, I guess, in the banks, and that's where they're putting their money. Um, but it's also understandable that the companies and, and consumers have been quite prudent and cautious about the future. It's, it's um, a pretty unknown territory right now for all of us. Um, and so, you know, obviously, people are, are putting their money aside to prepare for that. And I think, you know, it, it, it's positive that they are seeing banks as the, the place to do that. I think if you look at the limit uh, that it insures in the States is about a quarter of a million dollars. So that that's basically a, um, that's a very attractive sum if you're going to deposit your money somewhere in turbulent times, because for a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of consumers as in personal, you know, Joe Schmoes, and then also a lot of SMEs, you know, that, that the amount that you're going to deposit is going to you know, fall well under that figure. So I can kind of understand, you know, A, you know, let's max out our credit lines as soon as we possibly can. And then also, well, while we're at it, we might as well just get, you know, top up on the credit via the government stimulus. And what's interesting is some of the banks are saying actually people are basically taking loans and then redepositing them with the same bank. So it's almost like a back-to-back transfer in some respects, uh, internally just moving money from sort of one one side of the balance sheet to the other. Um, what, what I will say is that the... Um, 
the fees that the banks have made from from processing these loans, as you said, up to about ten billion. I mean, I, I don't. In the, U, in the US, it's probably more capitalistic. It's more free enterprise. In the UK, I mean, can you only imagine if that had happened here? Uh, that would have been front page news a long, long time ago. Adam, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, the the FCA has come out and um, had a moratorium and, and advised all banks that they've got to remove fees, and, and many of them have indeed done that and and, and offer forgiveness. And, and banks have been very good about implementing that quickly. But uh, yeah, this to the point that was made earlier about uh, if you're going to be seen as uh, you know a chance to rehabilitate your role in the economy, then then making fees off of this um, is maybe not not so smart. But um, you know, maybe maybe they didn't have any other way of doing it given given the change in their systems. Yana, I'm interested in your perspective on this. Um, you know, the big four also increased commercial loans during that time by an average of nearly 235 billion, um, and Citigroup passing more than a trillion dollars in loans. So, looks like corporations are pulling down on working capital facilities and much, much more. Uh, how much of this is about corporations going risk off, trying to get out of riskier assets, um, and consumers doing the same thing in the stock market crash um, versus versus like a run on the banks that some people might have expected to see? Uh, Simon, that's a very interesting question. I think what what, what we see is that actually both Europe and uh, uh, the US are in, in a free fall. So um, I guess from, from, from that perspective, um, having... I guess an increase in the, the the deposits that are being made is definitely uh, helping in, um, uh, in to a certain extent to give um, I guess assurance and confidence to uh, I guess those players of the ecosystem that are very much relying on the transactional bank. And I can say from firsthand experience that we do have a number of, of, of clients that are actually very much interested in ensuring that there would be uh, I guess no liquidity issues and uh, that the uh, the systems and the uh, the banking partners that we are using to facilitate their money movements are uh, stable and secure. And by the way, Simon, I know that that doesn't necessarily answer your question but uh, hopefully it still is useful no it's worthwhile i think though um it, it again it goes to this macro theme of of um this is probably like for, for those of us that have lived through the financial crisis this is a very different crisis and i think that's that's the the consistent theme but but i guess on that i think it's quite interesting to see the trend that on the one hand we have that huge spike of the deposits on in in, in the u.s on the other side i can i can say again first-hand experience in the first week of the lockdown, we actually have most of our large corporate clients uh, uh, inquiring about the stability of the various banking partners that we use, which which I think is a natural reaction on the back of what happened, I guess, 2008, 2009. Yeah. Yeah, and muscle memory is kicking in for sure, um, but um, but we're, we may be in new territory. Uh, Jimmy, um, what were the things that stood out to you about this story? Um to be honest, I've got nothing really to add on, on on this. You know, when I when I read it, I just I you know it just smacked of um, you know common sense. You know, when you time it with um, you know with what was being announced in particularly in in America during um, you know during that time, they 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 delayed quite heavily on on um, on kind of making any kind of preventative um, efforts like to dealing with the. Um, with the virus from a from a policy down perspective, um, you know, and and you know, I recall that in in March there was um, you know there was the first move in addressing the situation, um, you know, and there was you know a quite there was I remember there was there was one day of quite heavy um, uh, stock market drops, 
um, you know, where money was kind of being took, being being taken out and 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 placed in, in more secure um, uh, places. I, you know, I, and it just makes it makes a lot of sense that this is you know that this is the net um, the net result. You know, taking taking my money out of, of riskier assets and putting it in a, in a safer place. So I don't I don't have much to to, to add aside from you know contextually or it, it tracks with what was what was going on at the time indeed indeed all right well uh, it's time for our ad read we're just going to take a quick break and we'll be back shortly fintech insider is proudly brought to you by mytech systems a global leader in digital identity verification mytech combines artificial intelligence with human intelligence to deliver a digital onboarding solution that is reassuringly certain in uncertain times see how at mytechsystems.com that's m-i-t-e-k mytech this episode is also brought to you by Equinix. Equinix is the world's largest data center and co-location provider, enabling the fastest application performance, lowest latency, and a digital ecosystem for financial services. Its platform of more than 200 data centers worldwide protects, connects, and empowers mission-critical infrastructure for over 10,000 businesses. Find out more at equinix.com. Okay, now back to the news, and we're moving on from coronavirus and talking about some other things happening in the world of fintech. And uh, first story comes from The Telegraph, and our good friends at Monzo have applied for a U.S. banking license. So the challenger submitted its application to the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency on April the 20th. You down with OCC? Uh, It hopes to offer a full range of banking services, but first it intends to hire more U.S. staff and open an office in San Francisco. Monzo is now closer to being a fully licensed uh, U.S. bank than Revolut, which launched its app stateside in March, but has yet to apply for a license. The approval process is expected to take about 18 months to complete, um, and Challenge Bank Vara Money is believed to have spent two years and over $100 million to get preliminary approval for its license, and it remains the first challenger to have done so, although we know um, Square has looked to go down a similar route. Um Jimmy, um, Monzo has been sort of one of the, the darlings of UK fintech. I think the, the folks in the US um, have not really enjoyed uh, these UK fintechs coming over here and taking our customers. Um, how, how, do you, how do you see this? Is it the start of a long road? It's such a, I mean, it's, you know, credit to, to Monzo embarking on this during, during this time. I think it's, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely a challenging time to, um, you know, to try and uh, kickstart a banking endeavor um, anywhere, I, I think. Um, what's, I think what surprises me is, um, and, I, and I don't know much about the U.S. plan that they have, um, but, you know, do we know, is this going to be a rinse and repeat of what they did previously, like launch with the prepaid card and then kind of try and offboard people and, and, and move people onto a full, you know, like a full bank product? Um, you know, it would, it would strike me that that would, I would assume be the preferred way of, of, of doing it, but I haven't, I haven't heard much kind of, um, I guess, traction news of, of, about, about the U S when it relates to kind of Monzo specifically. I don't know if, is, does anyone have insight into, into that? If that's what they're, if that's what they're planning or are they planning to just drive launch straight into, um, you know, big consumer, consumer bank. Uh, so they're, they're um, going city by city and they're going through the partners first. I think um, Sutton Bank is providing the underlying banking license and I've, um, I'm not sure who the uh, who the payments um, partner was there, whether it's uh, Galileo or somebody along those lines. Um, but what I understand is they're going city by city, so the major metropolitan areas, so um, LA, San Francisco, New York and so on, uh, possibly Austin as well, and starting to build out a beta community and trying to go for that community-led approach, which potentially could work. Uh, but what's interesting is the US is, is just 
so many different microcultures and cultures to the UK that a community of action in 2014 um, it, that helps build a new bank when there are no challenger banks is very different to many cities, many cultures in the US when Chime is out there and doing its thing. Varro has been around for quite some time. N26 is spending massive amounts on marketing. So this is an interesting question. I mean, Caroline, you're an observer of this space. Uh, how do you think about um, your challenges entering the US and, and especially at this time? Well, I think, you know, banking licenses are really hard to be granted by the OCC. We, we, we've established that. Um, but that's why it is really important for challenger banks to, you know, essentially continue to challenge the status quo. And I think particularly in a market like the US that is relatively conservative, the entrance of challenges is, is really important to drive innovation and better customer propositions. And also, again, uh, you know, the U.S. has a large population of unbanked um, and they could definitely benefit from new players coming into the market with, with digital propositions that are also allowing more layers of the population to get access to financial services. So I think it is a really interesting advancement. I think it also shows the maturation of this space. So, so definitely a really, really interesting area. I think that I'm just kind of piggybacking off of what you're saying there. Um, I think what's also been really um, kind of obvious from kind of successful businesses in the in, in the US is that you know they've often been tied to a specific like a specific um, kind of ritual or you know or, or a specific activity like the Venmos you know of the world and the, and the cash apps of of the world. You know they're not banks, but they you know but they have achieved you know kind of hyper growth and. You know, part of me is, you know, admires Monzo for this. Part of me worries that, you know, do they do they need it in order to be successful in the in the US? You know, and because there's, you know, plenty of unbanked um, people. Again, is there is there a hundred percent need to kind of go down this lengthy and costly route in order to find success in the US? I think, um, you know, and I'm sure Tom and the team have got, you know, their, you know their reasons to to do it but it seems like the, the the companies that have seen biggest success have actually managed to do it without without the um the, the licenses and i and i and i wonder when you compare this to um you know to, to to revolut who um you know who i i think don't see a banking license as a um you know as the golden ticket to 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 get success. In fact, I think they probably think the the opposite that you don't need to have that type of position in order to to create success on a, on a global scale. I wonder if it becomes the expensive distraction that you know you know that means they don't topple the US in the same way that they did um, the UK. I'm you know I, I I don't know yet, but I I I think that there's you know there's a lot that's gone into this decision and I just hope they've done it for the, for the right reasons. No, I think great questions, Jamie. I'm interested though, you know, against the timing of Monzo having furloughed 295 of its UK employees and closed its Las Vegas um, support center. Um, and, you know, there's, there's the economic side of is now the timing or has this just appeared in the news and they applied some time ago. Um, and then, you know, the, the light, this license, if they get it, 
actually allows them to tap into a very different interchange market in the US. So that's that to me is is potentially very very differentiated. So you know, if you spend a hundred pounds in the UK, you a bank would receive something in the region of about twenty pence. Um, but if you spend a hundred dollars, you would get something in the region of of one dollar fifty. So there's a much higher revenue opportunity for being a challenger bank if you have a license versus splitting that across many players that you would have um, in the US. Um, Adam, do, do you think there's something there? Yeah, there's definitely something there. I mean, the the economics work unbelievably well. Um, if you if you um, if you hold the card, if you're the issuing bank, uh, you can pocket a significant amount of money. Um, I think what I would say is that the the I, I guess the other option that they have should they have gone down this path is to potentially buy somebody else who's already got a charter. Um, and you know, I think uh, I think Lending Circle did it, or Funding Circle was it? I can't remember. Lending Club, almost there. Uh, but they spent uh, they spent nigh on like two hundred million on that uh, only a couple of about three or four months ago. Um, but with that, you'll get like an incredibly large, I suppose, deposit book, legacy infrastructure, and sort of an M and A play that you've got to do something with. And I guess you know, looking at the playbook of Monzo, that's just not what not what they're good at and not what they need to do, especially when you've got, you know, Vero money who have just got the license, you've got the playbook. It's like going for um, architecture plans for your home and someone just around the corner has just got it. You can literally follow the playbook and you know where they've made mistakes. You just improve on it. Um, and that's basically, you know, it's a smart move. Whether now's the time is questionable, but I think, you know, you referred back to the challenger bank market in the States. It's still massively, massively nascent. I mean, Chime have got, what, 5 million customers. Um, N26 has hardly made an imprint on about 2250,000. So, you know, this is the opportunity is there for those who want it. Well, then you've got your simples and your your move-ins and, and everyone who, you know, like, you know, there, there is a maturity in that market to a, to a degree. But I think your point, Jamie, was the key one, which is Cash App and Venmo are massive and could potentially move in that space. So it is a very different market. I'm sorry, we're we're out of time on this story, so I'm going to move us to the next one. Um, and look, there's there's something else happening in fintech back on these shores. Um, so the the BCR has offered new details on grant allocations. So after Metro Bank and Nationwide returned some of their uh, winnings, the agency will distribute more than a hundred million pounds in two new funding rounds. So. £20 million will apparently go to companies that qualify for Pool D. These firms facilitate the commercialization of financial technology for SMEs and could receive between 2 and £5 million. And the other £18 million will go to companies eligible for Pools A, B, and C. These are modernizing or creating new business accounts uh, in uh, as well as companies expanding access to SME loans. Uh, and the grant sizes there will be between 5 and £20 million. Um, and they're currently consulting on how these grants will be awarded within these categories and the deadline for responses is on the 12th of May. Yana, I'm going to start with you. I mean, in in this market right now, SME lending is still absolutely crucial. Um, But it's interesting, some of the big banks have sort of turned around and said, actually, growing our business isn't a priority. Keeping the lights on appears to be more of a priority right now. Who do you think um, this is going to attract? And and do you think it can solve some real problems for for society and, and for small businesses? Well, I, I most certainly hope so, Simon, because as I said, the I guess uh, 
financial health and the growth of those uh, small businesses are the backbone of, of the financial services industry. So I, I most certainly hope that those funds uh, would be directed to uh, providers that are agile enough to be able to actually support the SMEs. And I think what you're saying about um, uh, banks now uh, deciding to not really focus on, on growing their SME book, which is, by the way, a, a huge opportunity because there is a real problem there, uh, is, 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 is very interesting. And I think that is very much based on or a result of the fact that in order to service the SME market, you need to be extremely, extremely fast and extremely agile in the product and technical solutions that you're providing, which is not something that I guess incumbent banks have been able to cope with. Indeed. And the SME space has really changed in recent years, as we've seen with the introduction of the uh, coronavirus business interruption loans. Uh, the British Business Bank has brought on new lenders like Oak North and Tide into that space. And as well in the US, the SME space is really hotting up with, with new challenger banks emerging every day. Um, Caroline, as you look at these funds, do you see an opportunity for innovation um, and uh, could the um, sort of fintech sweep up here? And um, and what are you seeing in that SME space more broadly that this could help um, really expand? Yeah, I think, you know, of course, if there's funding available, then uh, fintechs are going to welcome it. And um, and so they should. Um, I, I think the actual purpose of this fund really is, you know, underlying is the value and the impact of SMEs on the economy. But also um, this is the opportunity for, for cash to go in to, to um, encourage innovation so that they can grow and thrive. So I think, you know, it, it's this sort of funding has been pretty instrumental in providing benefits for the specific recipients um, so that they can drive innovation for this market. And I, I understand that, you know, total investment pool has been around £700 million, so a pretty substantial amount of money there. Absolutely. Adam, what do you think the scores on the doors are for people? Is it too early to say the people that did receive the funds and haven't got it back, are they succeeding with those funds? Um, certainly seems that stalling are releasing features at a rate of knots. Uh, we haven't heard much out of many of the other banks. You know, How are we going to measure success on this thing? And, and has it been a worthwhile endeavor, do, do you think, so far? Oh, boy, I, I don't think you can... I don't think now is probably the time, especially with everything else that's going on. Um, I think what one thing that that probably is is recognised but not necessarily talked about is that some of the commitments that were made by the players who got the cash might have um, might have been uh, what's the word uh, exaggerated. Um, uh, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> Cheers, man. Um, so uh, given that, um, I think you know the reaction from the guys who have actually given back the money nationwide and co might have been half because of that uh, and actually the undertaking to actually you know spend that money is so so big and the pressure that they put themselves under was so large that actually fulfilling that especially given the economy and and, and everything that's going on at the moment it was just too big an endeavor um, I will say that from the BCR's perspective to open this up to a consultation is um, is actually quite a good move um, because it has been a, a process which for fintech nerds and for FS nerds um, has been you know sort of there to be you know thrown you know stones have been thrown at it from a lot of us um, but actually asking how this should work and maybe chopping up the number uh, you know of 100 million to you know smaller smaller bite-sized chunks is actually kind of cool interesting stuff uh, Jamie any, any thoughts on this yeah, I think I think this is a this is a this is a great opportunity. I, I think for you know, I, I immediately think of businesses like um, like Coconut, um, you know, uh, Fat Salary Finance, like a number of like a, a number number of companies that I think um, 
you know, could could fit into this kind of you know relatively uh, woolly description of facilitating the commercialization of financial technology for 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 small um, for small businesses. I think um, you know if I were a fintech um, looking to kind of disrupt the the, the SME um, market from a from a from a banking or a cash flow perspective, um, you know, I can even like the, the fluidities of the of 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 the world as well. Um, you know, if I was, if I was Caroline right now and looking at this, I'd be very, I'd be very excited because it presents a really, a really good opportunity, I think. Well, Fluidly did actually win some of the original Paul D. Oh, did money. they win some of the original? Oh, that's just me behind on my, uh, behind on, on, on the, uh, on the info. But, you know, Sam and, and the, and the team at, um, at Coconut, if I was Sam, I would be, uh, I would be licking my lips right now, looking at, looking at this because I think it, it really plays into their, into their strengths. Yeah, and look, we do, uh, and we are very blessed to have a vibrant uh, entrepreneurial community of fintechs trying to fix things for the small business sector, and we need them. As Mark Andreessen said, it is indeed time to build. Um, speaking of potential fintech funding, um, the story comes from Finextra, and this is about uh, FIS starting a fintech venture fund. And rather than uh, me telling you all about it, uh, well, let's hear from Asif Ramji, who is Chief Growth Officer at FIS. Hi, my name is Asif Ramji, Chief Growth Officer of FIS. We're excited to announce today that FIS Ventures, the newly created corporate venture investment division of FIS, has launched an effort to invest a target of $150 million in promising fintech startups over the next three years. Our objective is to invest in companies and their technology, which will help us to provide innovative solutions to our clients in the future and to help these companies realize their long-term growth ambitions. FIS Ventures will invest globally in early to growth stage fintech startups with a focus on emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence, machine learning, digital enablement, and automation, data and analytics, security and privacy, distributed ledger technology, and financial inclusion. We typically look for companies that have strategic relevance to payments, banking, and capital markets, and have a large addressable market, whether it's deepening our capabilities in our existing business or broadening the solution set in adjacent markets or creating net new business opportunities. We are advancing the way the world pays, banks, and invests. Alrighty, thank you very much to Asif Ramji uh, at FIS. I mean, Caroline, um, at Mastercard, you've been in the space uh, looking at fintechs for quite some time with with your labs and various programs. I mean, what what have the insights been for yourself, and what might a corporate venture fund do for an organisation that that is in this space? Um, well, I guess you know we've got our Start Path program, um, which I'll give it a little plug to, um, which is essentially how we connect the best sort of fintechs in the business directly into our customers and our own business. And they're across sort of all the areas actually just mentioned. So sort of everything from AI to payments to blockchain um, through to sort of, you know, marketing um, tools and things like that. So really, really broad. Um, I think it is is about our, our focus in that is also to connect these fintechs into customers in our own business so that they can create genuinely sustainable and robust business models. And I think they can help um, sort of de-risk opportunities for their partners. They're doing things in, in more agile ways, in different ways than, than, you know, companies like ourselves at MasterCard, despite being a tech and innovation company, you know, they can, they can do things quite differently to what we do. Um, so I think this is a really interesting news because I think we also know that VC funds have been under a lot of pressure and there's been a slowdown. So it's it's fantastic to hear someone 
you know, actually making a considerable investment available. Um, And it's also, I think, an interesting time, though, for well-invested fintechs. So those who can kind of um, buckle down, they've got enough money under their belt to see this through, and they've got cost controls in place and a a decent business model, um, because they possibly some of them will end up being the next tech leaders. I think we saw out of, you know, the 2008 financial crisis, the likes of Venmo, WhatsApp, Groupon, um, coming through that crisis and and really, um, you know, building to considerable players as a result. No, interesting indeed. I think um, there's definitely something to be said for B2B fintech. Um, you know, people often see, think about the challenger banks or they think about um, competing for the consumer or the business um, kind of directly, but they don't think about always B2B fintech and fintech the supplier and just how big the, the, the plumbing is. I mean, Jamie, you're in the entrepreneurial space. You've had to do raises. How do you see the world of corp VC versus the world of traditional VC? And um, and, and how do you see this this fund entering the market? Yeah, it's a it's a really good really good question. Um, you know, and I think I was probably exposed to um, more corporate VC when I was at, when I was working at, uh, at Bud. You know, that that company was a you know a platform play for for large banks, and therefore, and and we actually raised from um, HSBC, Goldman Sachs, and and a number of others for the for the for the A round. So I had a bit more exposure there, and I, how it I think how it differs from. Um, you know, from what I've experienced so far with with Fronted is, um, you know, being wedded to, you know, your sole LP being the the bank, you, you know, you have to not only come with the right idea at the right time, but it also has to be, um, you know, jiving with a message which is coming from the, the bank as well. So your timing needs to be kind of, you know, it, it needs to be better than just you know you've got a really good idea for a for for a thing. It also has to be you got a really good idea for a thing that the bank is also kind of talking about and and wanting to explore more. Um, and so you know you you feel like you can you can land um, with something which is um, you know which is you know of the zeitgeist in the kind of the big banking world. And and I think for on the bud side, you know we were dealing with uh, with open banking um, with kind of marketplace API uh, platforms for for banks. You know which was really um, you know, resonating with a number of uh, banks who were looking to kind of occupy the, the platform space. Whereas, you know, with traditional venture, what we found is a good idea is a good idea. Um, and as long as it's solving consumer problems, you know, it doesn't really need to um, fit any other kind of, 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 of remit. My, my point around the FIS thing is, I don't understand why it's taken so long for this to, 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 to come about. I mean, you know, reading this, I was like, Right? Have they not had a fund this entire time? I mean, they're you know they're almost perfectly placed to, um, you know, to to do this. It's a really welcome um, sign, and obviously more more capital available for, um, you know, for for fintechs is great. I'm just shocked that it's taken taken so long when you've got you know your Mastercards, Visas, you know, most banks have got VC arms as as, as well. Um, so yeah, welcome to the market. Where have you been? <laughs> uh, FIS is absolutely massive, as we know. I mean, they've been doing a lot of uh, M and A recently. Um, they did also recently invest in Nigeria-based Flutterwave um, as their first investment, which does um, checkout and card issuing. Um, it's probably unfair to Flutterwave, but uh, a lot of people refer to them as the Stripe for Africa. Uh, it's a very interesting company and potential. You can see the strategic potential for somebody like FIS there to to have a small piece of something that could be a very exciting company going forward. Um, Yana, Adam, um, we're, we're up against it on time. So just uh, 30 seconds from, from each of you on this. I mean, Yana, what, what were your thoughts? 
I think very, very interesting investment ethos from from FIS. Uh, I think we're definitely seeing that there is still a lot of, as investors like to call it, dry powder to be redistributed. And I guess their first move in uh, Nigeria is already giving the signal that they will be looking for uh, markets, young markets with young demographic, with huge uh, growth potential. So I think very, very interesting and uh, a lot more to be seen from them. Indeed. Uh, thank you so much. And, and Adam, how about yourself? Yeah, I, I think the, the one thing with FIS in particular, especially since they acquired WorldPay, is that they can do a lot. Uh, core banking, acquiring and everything else. Uh, they're about 80 million market cap or something, which for one of the old incumbents is is, is pretty ginormous. So 80 billion, sorry, not million. Crikey, I've undersold them there. Um, so, you know, looking at, uh, I suppose, emerging markets and looking at uh, new areas of development suits them because they can do so much and bring so much of the infrastructure with them. So, yeah, I mean, good news story. And what How a great partner! Gonna... What a great partner as a small business to 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 kind of have, um, you know, early on, uh, you know, with the big weight of someone like FIS behind you, you know, it, it, whoever's, you know, whoever is receiving capital from this fund is probably going to be geared for quite, um, quite an easy ride, I would say. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, I'm going to move us to the last story, um, and uh, this may be my favourite story of the week. Story comes from the Financial Times. Uh, Animal Crossing has slashed its interest rate to near zero. Um, so millions of people have turned to video games to escape the uh, somewhat brutal realities of the pandemic. Uh, but Animal Crossing New Horizons has hit a little too close to home this week as the game's central bank mimics some real-life measures. Uh, this week, the Bank of Nook has slashed interest rates from 0.5% to 0.05%. Players will not earn additional interests on savings higher than 9000 999 bells new horizons in-game currency this move is expected to drive users to the stalk market yes that's s-t-a-l-k um where investors buy shares in turnip commodities new horizons is the latest game in the animal crossing franchise in its first week alone 1.2 million copies were sold in the uk and it currently boasts about 12 million players so um adam is our resident uh stocks guru um is it all about the stock market right now oh sorry you've been prepping for that one you've been prepping for it i've seen it um no it's uh it, i mean they say is a way to get uh you know escape the crushing realities of the pandemic but this kind of leans on quite a lot of the things that you would expect to see from the pandemic uh slashing interest rates and all sorts of other stuff um i uh i've never heard of it before if i'm honest so i'm um i'm gonna what's it it's on the Nen- is it on the nintendo Nintendo Switch, yes. Caroline has opinions. Go, Caroline. <laughs> so, so I haven't actually played this game, but this is my favourite story of, of the, the hour. Um, I used to actually work in massive multiplayer online gaming, and um, we had to employ economists. And, and people often underestimate the challenge of running an in-game economy. And it's it's actually really difficult if it's not managed effectively. You know, your virtual world becomes absolutely shambolic. You get disparities in wealth. You get, you know, people running around able to buy up every house and and people get really disengaged like in the real world. <laughs> but the, the, the key difference here is that um, people can actually just leave the game if they get disengaged. So you have to manage that economy really, really well or all your gaming income dries up. And and this game is fairly new, so it's not surprising at all that they need to adjust the interest rates. As you know, predicting that it can be pretty tricky to do far in advance. But I think I thought it was really nice that Society General made a comment on this. You know, it's a, a pretty uh, trying time, so nice to see some light relief. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was great. 
Simon, actually, just before the podcast, I was talking to our chief product officer, Adam, who is absolutely crazy about uh, online strategy and online simulation games. And what he was saying was that actually he was he was very disappointed to see the, uh, the, the interest rates being slashed. And what he was saying was that actually, uh, if there was no central regulator within the game, instead they were using uh, uh, blockchain technology, then uh, that wouldn't have been uh, possible to happen. So just... Uh, foot for thought yeah. unfortunately tom nook is is you know the capitalist mad uh, man at the center of, of animal crossing um which which prevents all of this um from happening the thing that i'm i'm kind of i don't know i i'm a little bit i'm a little bit angry about this you know i think you know you have you have games as escapism from the real world and more so now than 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 ever um you know and and kind of bringing the realness of uh, you know the current situation into people's escape. Uh, you know escapism. I think is you know can be can be a dangerous um, you know dangerous way to play it. I mean, luckily, I mean if you, you sh- everyone should definitely get a um, a switch and play Animal Crossing because it's the most peaceful it's the most peaceful way you can spend your spend your time nowadays. I can I can assure you. But um, uh, um, nothing like building that island. Um, but you know, but I think you know that broader into into the the that world. You know, what what right does the gaming world have to bring in the real you know the real world? Maybe I'm thinking too much about this. Maybe yeah, I don't care so, too much. So I, th- I think this goes back to Caroline's point about actually, if you're going to create a great game, you have to design it properly. And as soon as you introduce economics into games that make great games, you have to bring in economists. And um, I heard you know uh, I've heard a few people describe Animal Crossing as being having that sort of relaxing sense of almost Minecraft. It, you it just has this this chill vibe to it. But part of the fact is, is you're building something and making something. Um, but um, because people were using their um, Nintendo switches internal clocks to basically manipulate the amount of uh, reward they were receiving for just you know, passing time they're essentially able to do a sort of form of money laundering so a lot of gamers feel like because some people messed up they've changed the interest rates so because of money laundering our, our interest went rate went to zero and people don't feel so feel so good about that but hey at least it's a social phenomenon eh? caroline any further points before we uh, move on on this one uh, no, I, I mean, I do think, though, um, you know, the kind of the point of, of using g- games to teach financial financial literacy is, is actually a really good one. I mean, it's gamification is one of the most engaging ways to learn things, much more interesting than reading a, a sort of a, a small print on a, a, a financial institution website. So I think it, it's definitely there's a positive in that for the kids and also for adults. Yeah, for literacy and numeracy, this probably does a lot more for it than um, than, than a lot of uh, education programs that are well-funded centrally. Um, there are some celebrities getting in on the stock market. Uh, Elijah Wood made headlines when he visited One Player's Island to buy her turnips, and her tweets of the interactions went viral. Um, Brie Larson, Guy Fieri, uh, Chrissy Teigen, and Lil Nas X have all admitted to being New Horizons connoisseurs, on, along with Jamie Campbell, it would appear. Uh, all right, that wraps up this week's show. Thank you so much so much to our guests where can people find out more about you uh yana thank you so much for for having me simon um uh, linkedin our website twitter if you feel adventurous whatsapp and email brilliant uh caroline how about yourself uh yeah i'm on uh, yeah thank you for having me this this evening it's been great um so i'm on twitter at cc digital and also on linkedin brilliant thank you so much and jamie uh i'm on jc the original on on twitter of course you are and uh adam uh, Adam D8 on Twitter, LinkedIn, and 11fs.com. 
Thank you so much. As for me, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or email me, Simon, at 11FS.com. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, please do remember to subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us make the show better and it helps others find the show as well. Speaking of which, if you know somebody who loves fintech, possibly out on their their daily exercise, um, then do pass along the podcast and tell them about the show. Uh, If you have any suggestions or feedback, do find us on social media. Just search for 11FS uh, or Fintech Insider and email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much and goodbye for now.